0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, I I hear many of you doing it already, but if you have not yet, let me invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is where you want to be uh, this morning as we open up there in our sermon series on the faith of our Father, the God of Abraham. Uh, the, the life of Abraham, as we understand the, the narrative of his events. And uh, as you're turning there, let me, just, let me just acknowledge a few things, if you don't mind. Uh, first of all, nobody in the 90s, when this movie came out, nobody in the 90s went to the movie Titanic wondering the outcome to the movie, Right? No one was waiting in line at Titanic to be soothed to the sounds of Celine Dion's soundtrack and wondering what's going to happen, right? Uh, likewise, uh, Genesis 19 has something of that before us. The ship is going to sink. It's not a question of if, but when. And it's interesting that we use the word Titanic uh, as an adjective now, a, a titanic Uh, disaster. Um, There is something of a titanic type disaster in Genesis 19. Genesis 19 has been something of a titanic uh, looming across the narrative of Abraham's life. Uh, It has been looming ahead for us and we are at uh, Genesis 19 together today. Now uh, another comment here, one of the benefits, let me just speak uh, very personally and pastorally to you, one of the benefits of expository preaching, which is what we practice here at Edgington, expository preaching that does sequential preaching through a book, one of the benefits is that uh, we get to hear the whole counsel of God's will in terms of not skipping around. Okay? There is a benefit to sequential preaching, but there is oftentimes, sometimes, risk associated because it often means that we don't get to skip over the things that are inconvenient or uncomfortable for us. Now, that is both a blessing and sometimes a risk. Uh, We come to Genesis 19, the Sunday after Easter, (laughs) not because it was some strange intent to organize the calendar that way, but because in our commitment to the whole counsel of God's word, that is the next chapter, and so that is where we are without apology. And so, we come to Genesis 19, the something of a titanic disaster in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in that, we want to see how the gospel is true and real. And the realities of the gospel influence the way we think about our lives still today. Even though it's thousands of years after these events in Genesis 19. So let us first pray, and then we will hear God's word. Father, we bow before you, and we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself in the scriptures. You reveal yourself in the fullness of who you are, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love, a God of holiness, and yes, a God of judgment. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come humbly to your word today, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would settle our minds to receive by the illumination of the Spirit the teaching of the Bible. Lord, give us soft hearts and ready minds and able ears to hear what your word would say to us today. And so come, Lord, in the power of your Spirit we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Genesis 19, and we'll be reading the first 29 verses of Genesis 19. This is the word of God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast of baked and unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. And said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, "'Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? "'Bring them out of the place.' for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, The angels urged Lot, saying, "'Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city.' But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city, Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, From the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and behold, and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace so it was that when god destroyed the cities of the valley god remembered abraham and sent lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which lot had lived amen the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of god abides forever may he write eternal truth upon our hearts as we keep our bibles open Here in Genesis 19. So as I said, there is a Titanic of a disaster before us in Genesis 19. But I want to be very clear uh, today and very uh, direct. The book of Genesis has already given to us, by the time we come to chapter 19, the book of Genesis has already presented major evidences of God's judgment. Genesis 19 is in one sense about God's judgment for sure, but it's not the first time we have seen it. We remember in Genesis chapter 3 when in response to human disobedience, God cursed Adam and Eve and the earth upon which they lived and with it all of those who would be born in Adam, which is every single human being. God has cursed the world in that way. And also in Genesis verse, chapter 6 and 8, We saw the the curse of the global flood in which God punished mankind for its wickedness on the earth and uh, spared Noah and his family by means of the shelter of the ark. And so the subject of judgment in the book of Genesis is not something which we should shy away from or attempt to brush under the rug because this is a subject that causes quite a bit of stumbling for people as they try to reconcile in their minds the reality of a God of love who exercises mercy and grace and the reality of that same God who is himself a God of justice and judgment who exercises wrath. There are not two gods in the Bible. It is one God, the God of The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the fullness of redemption of our sins in His Son, is the same God who in Genesis 19 punishes the wicked. Now, dear friends, I understand that for many that is a great stumbling block. And yet, the teaching of the Bible is that this God is Himself a God of perfect holiness And therefore, when we peer into these mysteries of his judgment, there is something of a repulsion that takes place that might cause us to turn away. And yet, in God's word, he gives to us the things that we need to know to understand who he is and how he calls us to live in such a way that we must not turn our faces from chapters like this that would seem to cause us to rather stray away and go talk about something else. But we must look upon them and say, what is God like and what does this teach me What does it mean for me as a disciple of Jesus, Genesis 19? So for all the judgment that we see in Genesis 19, and it is for sure, we also see a great reality that God promises mercy for all those who turn away from their sins and He spares them from judgment because they do. That is all in Genesis 19. How we arrived there is something of uh, great controversy in many ways, but we want to be very clear. Uh, we're not going to unpack every single detail of this text, for we would be here uh, far past uh, the hours that you might intend to spend here this morning. Nevertheless, we want to understand what this means. So let us see, and you'll see on your outline, first of all, the justice of God's judgment in verses 1 through 14. The justice of God's judgment. Now, what, what's happening here as we begin in chapter 19 is that if you remember back in chapter 18, Abraham was visited by three men who we learned were actually two angels and the Lord himself. And those angels have gone on from Abraham's house in chapter 18 and they've gone on towards Sodom. In fact, look back in chapter 18 and look at chapter 18, verse 16. Uh, where it says that the men sent out from there, that is from Abraham's house, and they looked down towards Sodom. And so these angels who had been with Abraham were making their way towards Sodom, and now in chapter 19, they have come there. And as they arrive in Sodom, Lot is there. Remember Abraham's nephew, Lot? Uh, He is there in Sodom who goes to greet them and insists that they come to his house and share in his hospitality, not just to be kind to them, although that is certainly Lot's intention. He intends to not only be kind, but we also learn that Lot intends to protect these two visitors to Sodom. Now, it's very interesting if you want to go back later on and read chapter 18 and 19 together, there is a parallel of hospitality where we see how Abraham greets the visitors and how Lot receives and greets the visitors. And they both extend hospitality and warmth and greeting, but the context is quite different. The visitors that come to Sodom, these two angels, they come and they want to stay in the town square. Look at the end of verse 2. We will spend the night in the town square, but Lot presses them. Verse 3, presses them strongly. No, insist, come into my house, come into my house for the sake of shelter and my hospitality, but really, it's about safety. But we have to first ask, remember, what, what is Lot doing in Sodom to begin with? You know, we associate with Sodom certain things, and we find out in this chapter that that is actually accurate, but what is Lot doing in Sodom to begin with? The the nephew of Abraham, Abraham the man of faith, Lot who was a part of Abraham's covenant household, what's he doing in Sodom? Well, we learn... A couple of things as we go back into the narrative. Remember in chapter 13, the land in Canaan wasn't big enough for Lot's herds and Abraham's herds. And so they split the land up and Abraham said, Lot, you can have your choice of this land. And and Lot made the choice to to move within the proximity of Sodom. And chapter 13 says that he moved near Sodom. But then in chapter 14, Lot moves even closer to living in in sodom and when in chapter 14 there was that great military battles and abraham has to rescue uh, lot out of uh, king kirleimor's hands Uh, but by the time we get to chapter 19 where lot used to be near sodom and then in sodom we find him in chapter 19 verse 1 sitting at the gate of sodom and so the narrative presents to us this progression of proximity to Sodom where Lot grows not only in his nearness to Sodom but in his prominence as a citizen of Sodom because this terminology of uh, being in the gate near the gate means that he is a citizen of prominence in Sodom but what we have here is a picture of lot and his drifting away from covenant faith this is a picture of covenant drifting He is compelled away from the Lord, and perhaps he justifies it in some way, just like all of us like to justify our sins. Well, you know, it would just be a little bit. Or just this one time. Or maybe Lot had in his mind that he would have more social advantages if he lived in Sodom compared to Canaan. Maybe he thought there would be more material abundance available to him if he lived in that city rather than in the land of promise. Whatever the case might be, it's certainly the fact that Lot is a picture of covenant drifting compelled away from the Lord. And as we're going to see, it is not the case just that Lot has settled in Sodom, but rather that Sodom has settled into Lot as well. But in the end, we remind ourselves from 2 Peter 2, verse 7, that the New Testament considers Lot to be a righteous man. We're to read Lot as a believer, even though we see him in chapter 19 legitimately as a very compromised believer. But everybody can identify with that. We have all sinned, we have all struggled, we have all been allured by temptation. And if you have, and we all have, then we can identify with Lot. Now, this text serves as a warning to us. Because Lot is here in Sodom, and we know that this is not going to end well because of what chapter 13 told us, that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, and we do not have to get very far in chapter 19 to see the evidence of this. And again, I want to handle this discreetly, but also be as clear as possible of the implications of what is happening here. What we see is that these two angels, after taken into Lot's home, they prepare to go to sleep. But verse 4, look at verse 4, it says, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Do you see the emphasis here? The emphasis is on the men of the city once, the men of Sodom twice, both young and old, three times, all the people to the last man. Four points of emphasis to say, Everybody. And they are surrounding Lot's house. For what reason? Verse 5 says, they want Lot to hand over the visitors, bring them out, verse 5, so that we may know them. The Bible speaks discreetly, but let the reader understand. This is a reference to Homosexual abuse, which is apparently the normal course of action for the citizens of Sodom. The men of Sodom insist that it is their right to have their way with these visitors. And this becomes what Sodom is remembered for in the scriptures. This is why people use the term Sodomite and Sodomy. Let it be clear that this is both sinful and unnatural acts that are out of line with God's created good order for His people. I've given you in your handout there some evidences of this, but the point is clear that this is a aberrant behavior in God's creation but that this activity has become the normal course of behavior in Sodom, and it is outside of God's created purpose. So there's several things that need to be said about that. And one is that um, it, I think, is oftentimes tempting for us to think that uh, the world is altogether different today than it ever has been. That's not the case. We live in a fallen world this is the reality of life in a fallen world. But there seems to be something here for us that we need to pay special attention to. The reality of um, worldview accommodation in our, in our lives today. What is, what is true? What is God's good created order for his people in terms of these sexual realities? And chapter 19 presents for us what is not in line with that good created order We have to be clear about these things, but do you know, and I think that many of us can identify with this reality, that it is almost impossible to speak about these topics and not be perceived as being cruel? When the Bible does not speak cruelly about Individuals in this way, but rather reports the activity. It is not the case that it is evil to understand God's created order in this way. It is the way God has made us, and it is not evil or hateful or wrong to speak truth about these things. Uh, but I think, friends, living in the world today, you as a Christian believer must be willing to be misunderstood. You have to be okay at the end of the day with people assuming that you are a hate-mongering person if you believe biblical morality. And I hope that you as a member of this church would never speak harshly or cruelly or hatefully about anyone created in God's image. We should never do so. But we must understand what the Bible teaches about these things. Do you notice how in verse nine, The fact that Lot doesn't go along with this behavior means that he is then placed in the crosshairs of the judgment of these people. Notice what verse 9 says. When Lot refuses to turn the men over, they said to him, verse 9, stand back, give us what we want. And then they said about Lot, this fellow came to sojourn, meaning Lot was not a citizen. He came into the city to be a part of the city, but now he has become the judge. Do you see how it switches the perspective of morality, that famous statement, who are you to judge, is exactly the attitude that the men place upon Lot when he refuses to give them what they want. It is something of uh, the reality of sin that not just demands to be accounted as normal but also demands to be accepted and the Bible teaches us that that is not the case. But Lot here affirms in verse 7 that what they want to do is wicked, this idea of this abuse. He pleads with them in verse 7 not to act so wickedly but then turns around and decides to offer up his own two daughters in place of these two men. And so let it be said very clearly that Lot's decisions are equally as unrighteous. Equally as unrighteous. The only thing that keeps all of this scene from getting totally out of hand as they press harder upon Lot's door, is the fact that the angels reach out, grab Lot, and in verse 11 it says, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. What, What would have been an overwhelmingly grotesque scene is immediately stayed. And all of this is here presented for us, not because the Bible intends to be graphic, but because it is given for us To be a demonstration of what verse 13 says as being a just act of God. Verse 13, They say, we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And it is if Moses, as he reports this to us, doesn't want you to assume that God is doing something unjust, but rather he provides the evidence for why this is the case. So this is the just judgment of God upon Sodom here. But that is not the whole story. Because as we go on in the narrative, we see that there is not just a just judgment, but that there is an exodus from this judgment in verses 15 through 22. Because in the midst of this really difficult scene, this very uncomfortable reality here, grace is at work. God is going to take initiative in Lot's redemption. Lot is told in verse 15, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. He is told, get up and get out of here. And this is interesting at the, in verse 15 when he is told that. It's the same thing that he tried to go tell his future son-in-laws and they ignore him. They thought him to be joking is what it says. At the end of verse 14, they seemed to him to be just jesting. But Lot is told, no, you go. And he's told that several times. He gets this warning in verse 15, up, go. He receives the same warning in verse 17, escape for your life. Verse 22, escape quickly, get out of here. Lot has to be so compelled to act quickly because it says in verse 16 that he lingered. Lot, what are you thinking? The house is on fire. Why aren't you escaping for your life? I don't think it's because he didn't believe the judgment was coming because he clearly did. He understands that, which is why he went to his son-in-law's in the first place. It's not the case that he didn't believe the judgment was coming, but it seems perhaps that Lot's heart has been so compromised that he knows the judgment is coming, but he is unmoved by the reality of it. And isn't that a dangerous thing? To intellectually grasp a reality, but have it not travel down to the heart to move, to change, or to make a difference. The angels literally, it says, have to grab him and drag him and his family out of the city. Which reminds me of what Jesus says in John 6 44, 44, that no man comes to the father unless the father draws him. And that language of the father drawing the sinner is actually, could also be translated literally as drag. The angels have to drag Lot out of Sodom to his salvation in order to save his life. The Lord drags Lot out of Sodom to save his life. And what you have here is a picture of an exodus out of Sodom, this great departure. And you know what? Later on in the Bible, the the book of Exodus talks about the fact that the, the nation of Israel is going to have an exodus out of Egypt, out of slavery. Do you remember that? But they complain after they're out when they get in the wilderness. They say, we should go back. But Lot is not even out yet, and he's complaining about leaving in the first place. This is a scary reality, and I want to ask this question for application. What is the caution here? What is the point for us? And I think it is a clear word that it is possible to be a true Christian and yet be so consumed with the things of this world and the ways of this world that it does not move you to be concerned and alarmed about the reality of God's judgment. That you have fleed to Christ to be saved from, but also the reality that that judgment is a reality not just in my life but also others. We who are those who have made this world far too comfortable for us, that we don't care at all about the reality of eternity. And it's a strong word against our propensity to be far too comfortable in this world. Yet Lot is saved, he is protected, he is brought out of Exodus. Let's see, first, then finally the pardon from judgment in chapter 19, verse 23 to 29. Uh, don't, don't skim over it and mistake it. In verse 23 to 25, we see the fulfillment of what God has said. There is the judgment and the destruction of the cities that are in the valley. It says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. And as the dawn rises and uh, Lot and his family are being dragged out of the city, we see in verse 26 also the judgment on Lot's wife who didn't listen to the caution and instead looked back, effectively turning away from God's salvation and desiring to be back in Sodom. Jesus tells us in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife? Remember how her heart was also compromised? Jesus tells us our hearts need to be fixed on God's kingdom rather than the things of this world and so that we're not faced as Lot's wife did. But for all of what chapter 19 is reporting what I really want us to see is the emphasis of what happens in verses 27 to 29. Abraham goes up early in the morning standing before the cities as he looks down upon them and sees as it were the smoke rising up out of them you know I think it's easy it's too easy to think uh, that this chapter is just about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in and of itself it's not Sodom and Gomorrah could be any people in any place the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah reports the activities that it does is actually irrelevant because it could be any sin in any place, in any people, anything rebellion against our Maker, the point of the text is not that these sinners are somehow worse off than other sinners somewhere else. The point of Genesis 19 is that regardless of the place, regardless of the people, regardless of the sin, judgment is real. And sin deserves judgment. But there is a real offer of pardon from that judgment. That just as judgment is real, so too is the offer of the pardon from that judgment. Lot and his daughters are saved from God's righteous judgment, not because there's anything great about them, not because they're especially better than other people, not because they're smarter, not because they have more money, not because of anything about themselves, but totally by grace. Lot and his daughters are saved by sheer grace and also because of what verse 29 says, that in the midst of this scene, verse 29 says, that God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham's intercessory prayer of chapter 18. God remembered his covenant with Abraham from chapter 15. God remembered Abraham and saved Lot. So what does this all mean It is in that sense that we can see how this truly dreadful chapter depicts for us the pardoning grace of the gospel that in the midst of the reality of real and true judgment, there is even greater reality of real and true mercy for all who come clinging to Jesus Christ in faith. And as God remembers His covenant with Abraham and saves Lot, so too does God remember His covenant with His own Son and saves all those who come to Him in faith and trust. Pardon for sinners, Again, I want to emphasize this point. Loved ones, your sins, my sins, may look different than the people of Sodom, but they are sins nonetheless. And unless we are clinging to Jesus Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel, we stand liable to those sins. And Genesis 19 reminds us of that. But Jesus says something even more severe. Jesus tells us twice in Matthew 10 and Matthew chapter 11, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable for the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who have rejected the Son at the last day. It is more bearable to be a citizen of Sodom than it is to reject Jesus Christ ultimately. Can you imagine that for all the strickenness of our human race, that cancer has affected us. Can you imagine if there was an absolute cure, and it worked all the time, no matter what, and it was merely that you have to take out and receive it? Jesus Christ is, if you like, the ailment for what naturally affects us, our sins. And he's offered to us freely in the gospel, and what makes the Christian different from other people is not that they are not a sinner, but that they have recognized their sin as their natural disease and have received its cure. So, dear friends, do not read chapter 19 arrogantly. We should read it humbly, and we should read it mercifully and thankful that if we have hidden ourselves in Jesus Christ by faith, you will be spared from all judgment, but not because of yourself, because of Him. Let us pray. Father, we ask that in this text, which is, of course, very difficult in many ways, that you would humble us by your Spirit, that you would grant us repentant hearts lowly thoughts of ourselves so that looking away from ourselves we might cling to Jesus Christ in faith and trust. Lord, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven in Jesus' name. And so help us, Lord, to be those who, having received mercy, are also merciful toward others. Lord, do this work in our hearts, we pray. In the power of Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit etchingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.